but what is the price I pay for not taking that chance to find out what I can really do? Because that is how we rise. That's how we teach those around us to be fearless. And yes, have I failed? Oh my God, Rashid, I busted my nose so many times in life, but that is what has given me mastery. When we are willing to be authentic and vulnerable and say, I screwed up, I messed up. And boy, was it funny. Because if we are willing to say, look, I am completely authentic. I don't mind falling down because when the, it's not the falling down. And I've heard this so many times, but it's so true. Rashid, it's how I get back up. Welcome to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where paradigms shift. Impossible becomes I'm possible. And weirdos are exposed for who they really are. Pure geniuses. With your host, who walked from Chicago to L.A., just because he could. The one and only Mr. Weirdo, a.k.a. Rashid Huda. Hello, Julia. How are you? I am fine, Rashid. So where are you right now? I am in uh, Eugene, Oregon, in my lovely warm kitchen, surrounded by October leaves on the ground and a lot of squirrels going after my bird food. For those who don't know who you are, give us a brief two to three minute rundown on who Julia Hubble is. That is a work in progress, Rashid. And uh, for all the time that you have been watching me write on medium.com, which is how you and I got connected with each other, right. um, I have been evolving, uh, not only as a person, but professionally. So the, the short version, is that I do uh, uh, international adventure uh, travel. I'm an international adventure travel athlete and I'm 68 years old, which is rather rare for someone of my vintage. And so I, I ride horses all over the world. I skydive, bungee jump, uh, scuba dive. I, I paddle, I've paddled in the Arctic Ocean. I've done about 50 trips since I turned 60. So the main thing I do is adventure travel. And then uh, dovetailing with that, I also write about it. And my purpose in writing about it is that I support getting people off the couch and at least moving around the room to find their socks. And if I can get people moving, getting interested in being active, then I've done exactly what I came here to do. But I'm willing to take those extra chances and do wild and crazy things in the world because it's fun for me as an athlete. Um, and I'm not a natural athlete, but that's what I do. I write and I promote uh, fitness after 50. And my, my greatest, my probably the greatest time I'm the happiest when I am riding a crazy horse across the African, uh, uh, the African um, uh, open land uh, next to a group of giraffes and, and zebras. That's, that's me. That's when I'm the happiest. Now, you said a couple of things that are not normally associated with our age group. And I said our age group because you're only a year older than I am. And uh, that is the word athlete. Define what an athlete means to you. Well, um, we are, interestingly enough, Rashid, that's a great question because uh, all of us are born to be athletes because we are, we are given a body and the body likes to move. 
And the body loves movement, thrives on movement, and excels when we move. Now, that does not mean, nor do I imply, that you got to be an Olympic athlete to be called an athlete. Being active, enjoying your body, whether that's swimming or playing pickleball or climbing a mountain makes absolutely no difference. We're born to be active and enjoy the feeling of moving. It also is important to understand that thin does not mean fit. And so being active and being athletic means any body type can be active. Big people can be just as fit as super thin people. So the body type doesn't define athleticism. The enjoyment of being able to do what we love, getting on the floor, let's say in our age group and older, playing with the grandkids and not needing six family members to haul haul ourselves (laughs) to our feet makes all the difference. And I think when I say athlete for me, Um, I was working out at the gym three days a week uh, before I decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro when I, the year I turned 60. And that is the year that I threw myself into very serious preparation because that is not, that's not a small undertaking. It's 20,000 foot mountain. Uh, It takes a lot of work and I put my heart and soul into it. By the time I climbed that mountain, that was the, uh, in November of 2013, I was in the best shape I'd ever been in my life. I was more muscular than I'd ever been. And I've been a bodybuilder for almost 48 years. And the way I felt, what I realized was that I stood on the top of that mountain, totally out of breath, absolutely exhausted. And I had a rock in my hand and I looked out over the African plain and I thought, my God, if I can do this at 60, there's nothing I can't do. And so athlete for me, allows me to play in the world. I injure all the time. When I injure, I get up and get to safety. And the ability to do that at any age is what athletic means to me. Fantastic. I love that. And that is a great definition of athlete, just being alive and being able to do what your body is designed to do. You have had a very colorful life. What got you started? I grew up on a farm, Rashid, in Central Florida. And um, there's an awful lot about my background that is not happy. And I want to concentrate on the positive parts of it. But I want to touch on some of those things that that drive us because of how we grew up. My, my father taught me young to be strong. I was throwing great big bales of hay and and, uh, moving 100 pound feed sacks of sweet feed when I was a little girl and packing eggs for my father. So I grew up being strong and loving being strong. I left home at 16. My dad was an alcoholic and I had a big brother who was a predator. But the reason I was successful at being on my own was that my dad taught me how to manage money. I worked from him from the time I was four. And I learned that I could be responsible, get work done. He taught me how to set goals and and mark those goals off the list at the end of the day. And that launched me into a solo way of being. But I can tell you that the first time I knew I was a bona fide weirdo and I have the certificate on my wall in my office to prove it, the first time I knew but didn't really understand what it meant, I was three years old. I was in the bathroom about to get in the bathtub and I had kneeled next to the bathtub and I was praying to to whatever I understood to be God at that time. And I said, I want my own house. 
I want to live alone and in my own house. And I was three years old. I knew early on that I was going to be happier living independently, working independently. But I went on to join the military, which was not something that women were doing during the Vietnam era. And I chose it because I had lived on my own. I was putting myself through college. And all of a sudden, I, I was living in Florida. I'm working outside Disney World. And when the oil embargo hit, uh, all of a sudden, all of our jobs were forfeit. And that meant I couldn't go to college on my own. And the uh, long story short, I joined the military. That probably was the most important early dogleg in my career, which set me on a path to what you might lightheartedly refer to as professional weirdo. Because women didn't join the military at that time unless they had either running from something or they were trying to prove something, but there were not many of us joining at that time. And I chose journalism. I've been a writer since I can remember ever picking up a pencil. I was writing poetry when I was four. And so journalism was offered me as a job in the military. And not long after I got assigned to Washington, D.C., we had a young manager on our office who talked me into going skydiving. And that was my first major sport. There's something about learning to suck up your fear of uh, altitude and then let go of that airplane and just give yourself to the feeling of flight. That rewires everything in your brain about what you can and cannot do. It absolutely erases, I don't think I can, in some very, very important areas. There was a, a very strong theme through this, Rashid, which was I, I, I needed to achieve on my terms and not always the terms that were being dictated to me, which is why I left the military. And to that, there was one day I was sitting at the bachelor officer's quarters in Virginia, and I remember the thought came to my head, well, I don't think I can make it on the outside. I should stay in. Within 24 hours, I had put in my, my papers to leave the military. And, and most people don't tend to walk into a burning building, and I do. That was one of the most important decisions I ever made, because that decision would have been made out of fear and lack and you just cannot live that way if you're going to live an out loud life. And again, it makes you a little weird because most people tend towards safety, security. I had a secure income, blah, blah, blah. I had a stellar career. I just didn't want to be military all my career. So you take the chance, you take the fall, and you leap out of the airplane and trust that your parachute is going to open. Very, very true. And like you said, most people would not go that route because it's risky. But then... Life is risky, isn't it? Yeah. So for someone who is challenged with making that decision of giving up the safety net and go on their own, what would you suggest? There are a couple of things to think about. First, uh, there's a, a wonderful, wonderful YouTube video done a few years ago. Uh, a young Black entertainer is walking through an icy landscape, and he's talking about a series of interviews that were done with people who were days away from dying. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. They were asked, you know, what is it that you regret? And to a person, to a person, these people all said it was not the things that they had done, but the chances they had not taken. 
And that is a mantra for me, you know, as I age and I'm looking at the last two or three decades of my life, I'm looking at the inevitable, even probably slow deterioration of my body. The question of how out loud, how much more richly do I want to live between now and the end of my days? If I had an extra 30 years and I spent 40 years with an eating disorder and given the fact that I had that taking away life from me for four decades, I've got a lot to make up for. And so each of us faces this question, is it worth the risk? The question I would put back, like I would lob it back like a tennis ball, Rashid, is it worth not taking the risk? Because my father, my father, when he was in his uh, 20s, lived with Jimmy Stewart, Burgess Meredith, and Henry Fonda in a flat on Broadway. All four men were just out of college. My dad had just graduated from Cornell. The three other men went west to Hollywood. My dad was not willing to take the risk. He stayed in New York and ended up working in journalism and radio, but he missed the chance to be a Hollywood star. I don't think he ever recovered from that. We are faced so often with these turnkey moments and we don't realize we're in those moments. And when those opportunities come in front of me and I feel like, oh my God, I don't think I'm ready for this. That is my intuition telling me you need to do this. Right. That is my that is the first thing that comes to mind. You need to do this because what is the cost of not doing it? I may be safe, but what is the price I pay for not taking that chance to find out what I can really do? Because that is how we rise. That's how we teach those around us to be fearless. And yes, have I failed? Oh, my God, Rashid, I busted my nose so many times in life. But that is what has given me mastery. When we are willing to be authentic and vulnerable and say, I screwed up, I messed up. And boy, was it funny. Because if we are willing to say, look, I am completely authentic. I don't mind falling down because when it's not the falling down. And I've heard this so many times, but it's so true. Rashid, it's how I get back up. It's do I get back up? Do I get back on the horse? And I did get back on the horse that threw me and broke my back. I didn't know I'd broken my back yet, but I did. When I couldn't turn sideways, I looked at my guide and I said, hospital. <laughs> and there followed one of the funniest five days of my life stuck in this isolated uh, Russian hospital in the middle of Kazakhstan. Nobody speaking a word of English and, and no Wi-Fi. And the nurse would sit down at the other end of the hallway and I would carry a little piece of paper that said in Russian, may I have my shot please? And I would carry a little bag of Snickers uh, bars and I would trade Snickers for my paint shot. You can't make this up. This is my best material. And it, it happens because I am willing to take a chance, do something that scares me and take my lumps when things don't work because it's okay to suck at something. And I think that circles back around to the point I made about the military, which is if I, if I was willing to quit the military, uh, I was willing to open up a space in front of me where the universe can deliver the next place. And I think so much of this comes, Rashid, from our intentionality. You know, if I, if I am operating out of fear, 
And I think as humans, most of us do. I mean, I'm not going to tell you in a heartbeat that that I don't have fear. I have fear of, you know, okay, I fear I fear falling because the, these days if I fall, I could I could do damage to myself. It's not that I haven't done it plenty, but you know, the older I get, the more the more careful I am in my movement. But by the same token, I'm also training myself far harder doing one-legged weight work, all kinds of balancing exercises at the gym. So I'm in training for my 80s and beyond. So I recognize that there are there are aspects of aging that are certainly inevitable, but there is so much within our ability to deal with that as we move on. So does that mean I fear falling? Yeah, but I fear falling a whole lot less than my mother did because she was not athletic. And if she fell, she would have broken a hip. Now, you've got a, a question that I wanted to answer, uh, Rashid, when you, you were asking about what is my definition of weirdo? And you know, this is a this is a word that you have a, a wonderful way of embodying because of, because of your way of being and your way of being in the world and, and the angle that you have on topics and what you write about. And I love the word because weird is differently interpreted by each of us. And so what's weird for me is a state of being where I'm willing, as we just spoke about, to hear what the universe has to say to me. And if I'm in my stuff, and I'm operating out of fear, if I'm looking to be defined by society in the way that a 68-year-old woman is supposed to live, it will cost me the quality of my life. And so weird as defined for me is I choose to do what others do not want to do or won't do. And I, I am absolutely happy to walk into what others might consider a burning building. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, I was in Croatia a few years ago on a multi-sport journey and I was the oldest woman there. I think it was 63. And everybody else there was under 40 and they were making fun of me every day. I am a, I am a whitewater kayaker and a mountain whitewater kayaker and we were on the ocean. That's a completely different skill, a different, a different kind of a, a paddling exercise. And I was on a learning arc and I wasn't very good at it at the beginning because you never are. And so people made fun of me. And then another day we were out on my mountain bikes. I'd never ridden a mountain bike. I'm a, I'm a road cyclist. So it was a different skill and I didn't have my glasses on and I couldn't see the gears. And it was, I was trying to get up the side of a, of a, of a hill and I was in the wrong gear and I started going backwards. I mean, you can't make up this stuff. It was hilarious, but everybody was making fun of me. And they were talking about how much of an idiot I was and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I was laughing my whole way through those five days when we got to the last day and we did a hike. And you do not get in front of me on a hike. I'm a mountain goat. And so I left everybody behind, which of course nobody ever noticed. And we had this one, we had this one guy from Canada who was incredibly, incredibly arrogant. He loved to show off and he loved to do swan dives into the ocean. I mean, it's a beautiful part, part of Europe. And so he we he had agreed to do a bungee jump from Croatia's largest bridge. Okay, well, I heard this. We're on our way to it. And the guide was asking if anybody else did. Well, my hand went up. Now keep in mind, you know, there's I've got some history here, all right. And so we we get we get to the bridge, and everybody scatters all over, and they all get their they all get their uh, their cameras out, and there's a, a two man team with this bungee jumping outfit on the top of this bridge, which is really quite high, and it's over a river, and there's a guy in the in the water in a little bitty boat, and he gets people off the off the cable and takes them to the shore. Well, uh, John, who liked to call himself Mr. Wonderful, walks out and he poses for everybody taking pictures and he does a swanee and about halfway down he screams and he completely loses it. 
And so the boat guy picks him up and takes him over to the shore. And by this time, the guide has screamed out to everybody that the old lady is going to go off the bridge. Okay, well, he doesn't know anything about my background and I haven't told anybody about my background. And I'm sitting there looking at the equipment and I asked the guys uh, if there was any kind of a hard pull at the end and say, no, it's actually like a rubber band. You kind of come back up. That was the only concern I had. They strapped me in. I walked out to the edge. I looked down. I waved at the guy in the boat and I launched the most beautiful 10 points Swanee, held it all the way down through the first bounce. And I bounced back, went down, the guy picked me up and the guy in the boat and the two men at the top both screamed at the top of their lungs. That is the best bungee jump all summer long. And John, John was standing on the shore looking at me going, what? <laughs> well, well, the secret, I got 130 skydives. I'm a damn good skydiver. I've been in the air a lot and I've done zippers and caterpillars and what they call horny gorillas. I've lost my main parachute twice. I don't panic. I love being in the air. And I'm not going to tell anybody that it's so much more fun just to go out and prove it. And it shut him up for the rest of the trip. It's one of those lovely things that those of us who are this age, Rashid, you and I have both these marvelous stories about the chances we were willing to take in life. And it gives us a perspective and a background and a confidence having known what we were able to do and still able to do. And so when somebody makes fun of us and they say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. I run into people all the time that think that I can't possibly do five push-ups. Well, you know my stuff. I, I did a yeah. hundred of them just a, a couple <laughs> hours ago at the gym. You know, so when people love to make fun of those aspects that make you weird, when you show up as uber competent, it shuts that stuff right down. Yep. So I say, I'm backing you. Embrace that inner weirdo. What makes you weird is what makes you special and unique. That's it. How do you define success? You know, I... I have thought about that ever since I read that question, uh, Rashid, and uh, it is extremely fluid because these days I consider it successful when I wake up in the morning, don't fall out of bed and can locate my dentures. You know, again, if, if you could have a sense of humor about being fortunate enough to wake up and being able to make a difference in people's lives, which sounds very Pollyanna, but one of the ways I measure success is when I wake up in the morning, I look on Medium, for example, and somebody will write me uh, like one medium writer wrote me the other day and she said, I am so tired of having you bark at me about fitness. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And she said, I've been working out with a trainer for four weeks and I love it. <laughs> and that's, that is success. When I complete a project, which is the hardest part, starting is the easy. We're all great at beginnings. We're not good at finishing. Mm -hmm. When I am able to set a goal, complete it, and feel as though that is a significant landmark that was worthwhile. But I do not define success in money. I don't define success in riches. I define success in the, the number of people's lives I've changed. Because years ago, 1985, I listened to a speaker who was actually speaking about computers when they were still very new. And he said, uh, and it was a, it was a group of multi-level marketing people of all things. And he said, move people's lives. And it was like the hand of God just went down and sat on my head like this and said, you just heard your life purpose. And I knew it in my DNA right then, Rashid, that that was what I, what I came here to do. But you can't do that unless you move your own. So it's uniquely defined. It moves daily. 
And that's the joy of being willing to accept that success can be the small things, the big things, and the dignity of effort drives success. And if I know I try and fail, the effort for me is successful because I can take that effort and apply it to something else where I might not fail. So it's a long answer, but it, it's weird. Well, <laughs> it doesn't absolutely fit the true. There is a there is a verse in Bhagavad Gita in which it says that you have the right to your efforts. You do not have the right to its rewards. You're familiar with Rabindranath Tagore? Julia, I am surprised that you know who <laughs> he is. Yeah, Tagore is a magnificently lyrical Indian Nobel Prize winner in, I was 1920, 1921. And one of the verses that he wrote lives in my daytimer, which I have now had since 1985. And one of the pieces of that is, uh, let, me, let me not ask you to still my fear, but hold my hand in my failure. And that is a, that is a, a terrible re rewriting of what he said. But the whole idea is that, you know, think about, let me put it in the simple words. My dad was the first announcer for the Washington, what is now, now the Washington team. And I grew up with football. And so every, every season, but this one, I love watching those guys make those incredible catches and all the rest of it. And it has always fascinated me that when the receiver makes the catch and then he kneels in the, in the end zone and he points up to God, he's telling God, oh, this, thank you for allowing me to win. Well, I don't agree with that. What about the guy who flubbed the tackle? What about the guy whose missed tackle lost them the game in the Super Bowl? What about those guys? Why don't we say thank you for humbling me and teaching me that I'm not all that? To me, that might be weird, but I'll tell you what, I learn more from every one of my flubs and failures when I reach out and say to the universe, hold my hand because boy, did I screw up right now. Mm -hmm. That is the definition of faith, because if faith only works when we're feeling good on top of the world and making money, then faith is false, Rashid, and that is the fundamental belief I've got. If I'm going to move through the world, I want help when I'm down. I want help to help me get back on my own two feet, be there when I've just broken my nose. But I'm not going to thank you for my, 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 my wins because that doesn't come from me. That comes from my muse. My yes. muse is the artist that lives in me that writes my articles when I am not in her way. And she is the one who saves me when I'm going down the stairway and I slip and I can catch the banister. When I give credit for the great things in my life away and I thank my faith, for helping me get back on my feet when they don't go feet when they don't go my way, that might make me weird, but it does make me awfully powerful. Absolutely, I agree one hundred percent with you. There is a uh, idea mentioned in the Quran that ask for forgiveness and success, and give gratitude when you have challenges. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, 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 the very popular uh, retelling of the, the Chinese character, May You Live in Interesting Times, you know, in chaos, which is where we are right now, Rashid, in this business of, of um, uh, moving through COVID, uh, what people spend far too much time on is going back to normalcy. Well, first of all, we're not going to because whatever was normal hurt a lot of people and continues to hurt a lot of people. So mm -hmm. we don't want to go in the opposite direction. 
but we are having a terrible time divorcing ourselves from what was because it was comfortable Mm -hmm. and moving on towards what's coming, which is full of potential. Now, if I'm willing to learn to live more simply, if I'm willing to be more gracious to people whose skin color is different from mine, if I am willing to, to learn what being in the middle can teach me, that is where mastery and grace both live. But I have to be willing to live between the trapezes of what was and what's coming because we don't know what's coming or when it's going to get here. Mm-hmm. And we might not like it when we get there, but in the chaos is the redefining of the self. That is where the phoenix rises. The ashes have to be flying and there has to be fire. I have. I get to redefine myself in this moment of chaos. That's the beauty of transition and change. And when we argue with the universe and say, please save me from my fears, honey, I don't want to be safe from my fears because those monsters live in my basement and I have to face myself in the dark. And if I can't do that, Rashid, then I am dependent on somebody else to save me, which turns me into a perpetual victim. What's your experience with intuition? And you, you mentioned it, and how has it helped you, served you? I'm trying to remember what year this was. Uh, I think it was 1987. I was living in Melbourne. And I was uh, learning how to, how to fly ultralights. And these two young men were trying to raise money to fly ultralights uh, from Perth all the way across the central part of Africa, which is an astoundingly huge over- undertaking. And they were trying to raise money. And they got all excited because I was a pilot and I was the only woman out at this facility at a place called Geelong, which is in the, in the state of Victoria on the south and southern end. And they got me all excited and I paid for all my training and I learned how to fly and all the rest of it. But increasingly, I got a very bad feeling about these two young men. And I kept thinking, if I isolate myself in the Australian outback, even with a support team, this is going to go sour. And ultimately, I pulled away from it. I mean, I learned how to fly. I got my ultralight lessons and all the rest, for which I'm very grateful. But the whole thing blew up. That was my sense that it was going to happen. And it did happen, just like, you know, what you were talking about. This is, I think it's so important that, for those of us who operate alone, think alone, are entrepreneurs, all the rest of us, you travel like I do some to some pretty, pretty hairy places in the world that you take what could be called common sense precautions, but you also, you also use that sense that says, you know, I'm interested in that part of town, but I'm not going there alone. I'm going to take somebody with me, or maybe I'm even going to take two somebodies with me. Or I'm going to take a car with a couple of guides simply because, you know, a white woman in this part of town may lead to a kidnapping because that is what's done in the world. I mean, uh, right now uh, in Haiti, it's it's a real problem. If, if I were to go to Haiti right now, I, I, I could be seen as a source of several million dollars, even though I've got no family. So you really have to listen to that inner voice. It's very, very wise. If somebody wanted to learn from you, get to know you more about what you do want to give you some money where would they go (laughs) well walkabout saga uh, www.walkabout spelled just like it sounds walkabout saga all one word.com is my website i write on medium people can follow me on medium but eventually i'm going to be moving over to walkabout as my primary source and uh, right now, all the all the work that I do on Medium tends to populate over there. But I will be I will be forming um, a paid site on Walkabout, which will have content that does not show up um, on Medium and other free sites. And that's in the that's in the making right now. Um, the work that I do right now, Rashid, is mostly uh, consulting 
for my international clients. And um, I, am, I am really interested in moving forward those international concessions, which hire locally, which do sustainable work, which work very hard to pay fair wages to uh, people who are the porters that take them up the mountains in places like Kilimanjaro. Uh, my international travel is supported by the work that I do in those areas. And so part of, uh, I don't make money from doing it. I, I have to do trades. And so I'm trying to turn that into paid work so that the articles that I write invite people to come see Kilimanjaro, climb Kilimanjaro, visit Old Pajeta, ride horses at Malo in, in Nairobi, go do things that other people don't do. Go have the experiences that other people aren't willing to risk having. And in the process, fundamentally change their lives. But more importantly, and for me and the people that I'm working for, the money that they spend going to places like Kilimanjaro, going to places like Opejeta pays for conservation of the world's great disappearing mammals. So I choose these places very specifically because I get to go and do this kind of adventure in places where these animals are disappearing. And I do not want to live long enough to see the day that the only place we see these animals are painted on the nursery walls of our children. And so part of what supports me is when I go, uh, people reading my stuff and uh, on Medium, which pays not very much, but it, it helps pay the bills. And then eventually on Walkabout Saga, I'm going to be creating content that might be of interest to other people. Well, hey, Julia, it was wonderful, wonderful talking with you. First time face to face. If yeah. You want to if you want to call this face-to-face, -face, as, <laughs> as close as we will get to right now. But I am looking forward to joining you in a couple of years when you go back up Kilimanjaro. Well, and let me let me throw down the gauntlet. Um, I am planning to do it when I turn 70. Yes, I um, that is, it's, it's going to be a very small group because I'm, I plan to do a podcast on the way up. And so I've got shoulder surgery coming up at the end of November, and I've got um, hand surgery coming up shortly after that, when I will be training all this time getting ready for that. So the idea is to climb Kilimanjaro on the 10 year anniversary that I did it the first time. And we'll see how all that comes about. I'll be writing about it. Fantastic. And I'm looking forward to it. And I would love to join you because that's one of the steps towards my ultimate goal, which is to stand atop Mount Everest on my 75th <laughs> birthday. Yeah, so, save, save those pennies. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your life story, your wisdom, and you have been graceful. Thank well, you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where we debunk the myth that weirdo is a four-letter word. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Share it with a friend and leave a tip if you like the show.